everyone. We'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Nothing Controversial. Uh, we're, we missed y'all. Hope y'all missed us last week. Probably not. Probably not. They probably didn't give us a second thought. I wouldn't have actually given us a second thought, but, you know. Hey, that, that Wednesday or midweek episode of, uh, of Marvel and DC, I, th- I thought that was fun. Every once in a while, we do something a little controversial. I know. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? A little, a little crazy. And this week... We're not well. We're really not doing anything controversial. Oh no, not at all. We're going back to the normal operation. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court nomination. So there's no controversy. No controversy. I I don't. I haven't seen any in the news. I don't know. I I haven't. That's crazy. Not that I watch the news. (laughs) That is that is of a problem. You can't you can't see what's in the news if you don't watch the news. That's true. I've always said that. Yeah. But that's why I don't watch it. That's why I don't watch it. (laughs) Seriously, ever have those days where you're just like. So overwhelmed with the news, you're just like, I can't take this anymore. I'm just turning it off. And you don't come back to it for several days. For sure. I mean, well, especially when we have, uh, when there's a major controversy going on. And, uh, you know, I I get so tired of the, there's so much rhetoric in the news these days. You know, you you just want something that's factual and, and you want to consume news that is, both factual and just, just decent, and, and yeah. it's very emotion-filled, and, and I think uh, a lot of the logical fallacies that we talked about a couple of episodes what? ago. I can't believe that you would accuse the news media of using logical fallacies. Well, you know, it's just it's the way it goes, but you know, it, it just, it is frustrating. It, it's, and so I, I think a lot of people are just, in, you know, just sort of, um, I think a lot of people um, particularly young, younger people are, are moving away from the news, moving away from traditional um, places to consume news. I, I, I would agree, which is why they're turning towards these wonderful podcasts that we're doing. You like know, that, I set that up. You did set that up for me. I, I appreciate that a, that a whole lot. That's you know, it's nice to have a wing guy, you know, out there to you know help you out when you need it. Right, you know? right. Yeah, you yeah, always yeah. take a wingman to a bar, for that's example. Right. That's that's essential to having a, a guy's night out, right? Yeah, I take somebody to a bar so they maybe you know pay for my you know. That, that's understandable. That's, I, I take someone with me just so I look good. You know, it's, it's really sad though when somebody else invites you to a bar and you learn later on that they're like they invited you so that they could look good. Ah. You know, I was, you know what's that old saying? You kind of surround yourself with people not as good looking as yourself to make yourself better looking. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of saying? Did they say that? I've, I've heard that saying. Yeah. People have told me that's why they hang out with me. <laughs> oh, so the Supreme Court. Um, so we're going to make this a two-part episode. And I think in this first episode, we're really going to just talk about what what is the court? What is its role? What is its function? How is it set up? Because so many people are talking about the court now. And it's not it's not a branch of government that we we really are that worried about, right? Until something happens. Until something happens, and then all of a sudden, you know, and you know, and I've I've got as a government teacher, as I just want my credentials out there. A, a, a professor. <laughs> well, you know, what I profess now, <laughs> that's a whole other ballgame. <laughs> but um. You know, the, the Supreme Court is very interesting because the the modern court, what it does, which so not what the, the founders had envisioned it being, 
The founders thought, in fact, it was going to be the weakest branch of government. Like, this, you know, the Federalist Papers? Sure. Was the papers that, like, the Federalist Papers, there's, there's 84 right. letters that, that Madison, Gandhi, and Hamilton, you know, they write these Federalist Papers. And they're trying to convince the people of New York to adopt the Constitution. Well, in the Federalist Papers, like, it goes on and on and on. There's, there's 84 of them. When did they actually discuss the Supreme Court? Like 78. Like you, it's like just at the very end of the Federalist Papers. We're like, oh yeah, there's a court, by the way. We should probably discuss the court system because we spent 77 other articles discussing everything else, but we're going to finally hit the court system here. You know, that's... Right. Well, and, and you know, we were talking uh, at lunch the other day about, you know, why 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 is it that the corpus is never really mentioned and there's just such ambiguity even the constitution only mm-hmm. has what four paragraphs three paragraphs three paragraphs constitutional has three paragraphs on the court and, and so we were trying to figure out why is that and, and the only thing that I can come up with yeah is that you know when our, when the founders set up the government uh, or when they wrote the constitution that I should say uh, Congress is sort of modeled, modeled off of Parliament. Um, it is. You know, yep. you have two branches. You have, the, or, sorry, you have two houses, two chambers. Um, the House of Lords is the, the higher chamber and the House of Commons, the lower chamber. Which is the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the Senate. The Senate being the upper chamber, the, the House being the lower chamber. So there's some there, there's similarity there. There's even similarity, I think you could say, between the executive and um, and the monarchy. I mean, not oh, as absolutely. many. You can draw some conclusions there. There's nothing like our Supreme Court system in 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 the British system, uh, you know, right. or, or really, I mean, at that time, in, in the late 1700s, really, this was a novel idea. It, it really was, and what's very interesting too is when you look at the documents of the Constitutional Convention, like you go back and see all of the things that Madison recorded and stuff, and <clears throat> what's very interesting is. You know, the, the Constitutional Convention lasted close to 140 days, right? And if you if you go back and you look at that time period, most of the time, I mean, they're debating several major issues. Those issues dominate the Constitutional Convention, particularly when we talk about representative government. You know, we got the Great Compromise. Um, we have the Three-Fifths Compromise. And then another big issue was the uh, Electoral College. Like, how do you elect the president? You know, it took them 63 votes before they finally settled on the Electoral College. Like, they debated the Electoral College for a while. And uh, when we get to, by the time we get to the court system, there's nothing. Like, the outcome of the court system is, I mean, it's there, but it's, it's very general. And what Congress ultimately decided to do was basically to boot the question. The Continental, or the, excuse me, the Constitutional Congress. They just booted the question. And they're like, we're going to let Congress, the first Congress, set up the court system. All we're going to do is establish a single court. And that's it. And then they basically let um, Congress do everything else, including <laughs> they left it up to Congress to determine the, the whole court system. You know, we have a superior Supreme Court. But Congress determines all of the appellate courts and the district courts, everything. And it could be more than that. You know, we have uh, court marshals and stuff. Congress, that's all of that. Congress establishes the number of judges on those courts, including Congress establishes um, the number of judges on the Supreme Court. You know, the initial Supreme Court had six judges. Now we have nine. 
right? Um, Congress also establishes kind of, so to speak, the qualifications for judges. Because first of all, there aren't any in the Constitution, right? Article three, which discusses the judiciary, nothing in qualification. Now the assumption is, the assumption is that the president who makes the laws is gonna nominate somebody. Who enforces the laws. Who, who uh, oh, excuse me, president who, yeah, whatever. Modern times, presidents make laws, right? We all know this, no. Uh, the, when the president enforces the laws. And the, uh, the House, uh, not the House of Representatives, the, the legislature as a whole, they make the laws. So who better to determine what it takes to be a judge of the laws than a combination of that which enforces the laws and, a com- and that which makes the laws? That's why the president nominates and the Senate confirms. So it's a combination of the both. And the theory is, and we let the upper chamber do it, the Senate, not the House of Representatives. Because in theory, the upper chamber is the more enlightened branch of government. Okay, it's less it's less directly connected with the the will of the people. Right. So in the original Constitution, the Senate was never elected by the people as it is today. The 17th Amendment changes that The Senate was originally elected by the state legislatures. So the Senate is considered the upper chamber because it's less prone to the capricious will or factions of the people. So in theory, who better to make a choice for senators than a choice of a choice? Right. What I mean by that is the people choose the state legislatures, the state legislatures choose the senators. So they're a, senators are really a choice of a choice, kind of like a filtration process. Right. And the idea of that filtration system is to have a more enlightened branch in the Senate. And so you have that enlightened branch. So in theory, you don't need to put qualification on judges because of who's doing the electing, the president with the Senate. So they're already enlightened, they're, they're experienced in government, they're making the laws and they're enforcing the law, so they're gonna have the best understanding of what it's gonna to take to in, interpret the law. Right. So the Constitution, by the way, does not say. Right. Another misconception, the Constitution says nothing about the interpretation of law. <laughs> really, really funny. But um, that, that being said, um, you know, theoretically, you could say, well, the president and Congress, they can really put anybody on the court. And they really can just about put anybody on the court. There's not even a citizenship requirement in the court. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know, and, and I, I looked at it the other day, the, the first uh, the first several justices um, didn't have law degrees because, you know, at the time, things were, I mean, things were just different than they are now but oh absolutely but you know there there really wasn't a, an education requirement um you know and i think and i think the last one it's like 100 1800s i had to go back and look but the last you know in the modern era we've never had um of course a, a, a supreme court justice that didn't have a, a, a law degree and, and had an extensive legal career right but uh but you were saying something about uh when you look at the ratifying I think it was Virginia. I have to go back and look. Um, but I've, uh, there was a one argument made at the at the ratifying convention of the state, and it was that the court would just become would, would become overpowering. That the court, mm-hmm. if left unchecked, the court would um, would really usurp the the authority of what they then considered thirteen sovereign nations. It's what one thing that we forget, you know, the, the 
the founders and the and the people of that era, many of them considered each colony, each new state, to be right. its own sovereign nation. And and the United States was viewed much in the way that we view like the UN. Right. You know, you send your two senators, and, and they're they're much like the ambassadors that the United States sends to the you know to the UN, and and, and really were concerned about protecting the continent, providing a continental military. Right. And, right. and beyond that, you know, maybe we have the same currency, which that developed, I think, even, and that was one of the things, one of the reasons that the Articles of Confederation were so weak, because there were, you know, there was the... Oh, man. There was such a division between, there was no uh, overall central government strong enough to keep them together. Right. And so it was so weak. And, you know, you, that, of course, comes back to the age-old question, which we'll just mention and then we won't go into because we like to do things like that around here. The age-old question, is the Constitution a constitution of the people or is it of the states? Oh. And, you know, you have the Constitution itself kind of indicates both, but then you typically have sides that say one or the other and so forth, you know, because the preamble is we the people. But then it follows it up of the states, we the people of the United States. And so... Little you. Yeah. That's, that's that's really important. Yeah, that it was the it was united with a qualifier. Right. It was really the people of the states of America, mm-hmm. you know, and so and they both, by the way, end up gaining representation in a bicameral legislature. The people get the house and the states get the Senate. And so there's almost and there's an implicit recognition that there are two sovereignties in America because we talk today about one sovereignty, the sovereignty of the people, but the sovereignty of the states as well. Otherwise, if it were not so, you wouldn't have there wouldn't be a need for a bicameral legislature. Right. That's the whole point of the Great Compromise, right? Is that you're getting both of them are getting their due share of representation. Whereas now we have essentially two houses of representatives. Correct. Correct. Now because we elect the senators, we we now have two houses of, of yeah, two houses of representation. Yeah. But you know, you're right. It's very interesting. You you bring up Virginia and all of this. And what's very fascinating is um, Alexander Hamilton, and when he goes over the Federalist Papers, when he looked at, like, when you read Federalist 78, where he finally really addresses the court, discusses, uh, basically, Virginia's accusation. And, you know, Virginia's worried that we're going to have a Supreme Court, which, like you said, is going to become a, well, today we would say a court of nine superior judges, that govern, like a tribunal right. that basically govern everything. And Hamilton's argument, his answer to that argument is the court is incredibly weak. He says the court lacks both the, the power of the purse and the power of the sword. In other words, the court lacks the ability to control its own budget. So it can't um, financially, it doesn't even have the ability to sustain itself. It doesn't. Congress has to fund the court every year. Right. Congress can really jack with the course congress can do all kinds of things in the court and they did they kicked them uh, in the original the original court was was they threatened to kick them out of, of, out, of the cap- out of yeah. the capitol building which they had they had their own building <laughs> no they had like a little room have you ever been to the capitol and seen the original quarters yes and it's like this was our original quarters <laughs> we got booted out of here it's like crazy like it's gonna kick a, a whole branch of, i mean it's our building. And you know? not only that, but to show you how weak the court was, the first year they never met as a court. The first year that the court's founded, there are six judges. They don't even meet the first year. The first, they spend the first year setting up procedural processes for everything, like trying to figure out how this is all going to work. There's no there's no cases in that first year. None. Because <laughs> they, they don't know what to do. And so Hamilton's argument, going back to Hamilton, is he gives two arguments, right? They don't have this, the purse. 
So they don't have the finances. And two, they don't have the sword. They can't even enforce their own their own decisions. The executive branch is really responsible for enforcing a court decision, not not the court itself, right? That becomes a huge sticking point. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in our conversation, but that becomes a huge sticking point in the most paramount Supreme Court case of all, right? Marbury v. Madison, uh, where the court gets the power out of the case of interpreting the Constitution, you know, to rule a law that's unconstitutional. Fascinating that they gave them that power. Which is very interesting. So to get to that case, I, I pulled up a copy of the Constitution here. Right. Okay. So I, I wanted to read, let me pull it up here. I wanted to go over what the Constitution really brief says uh, for the court to do, right? right. This here is Article is. 3. This is Article 3 of the Constitution. And I'm going to, it's it's really, well, it's three sections. I think I said three paragraphs earlier, three sections. Section uh, 2 and 3 each have a couple paragraphs in them. But, you know, it says the judicial power shall be invested in the Supreme Court, which is very important. Uh, we call that an investment clause. And every part of the Constitution has when Articles 1, 2, and 3, they all have an investment clause. So Article 1 begins, the legislative power shall be invested um, in a Congress, right? Right. And the executive power shall be invested in a president. So those investment clauses are important because who's doing the investing? That's the question. Who gives them that power? So when we say it's invested into, it implies that somebody's doing the investing, right? Well, we the people and we the state. We the people we the we're the ones investing that in them, right? So they derive our power from us, whether directly from us or through the states. That's where they get their power from, right? Right. Which means that you cannot nobody else can exercise that power without our permission. That's kind of that's a whole nother ball game when we get into we should have a class a uh, class. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so into this stuff, you know. We should have a a, a podcast on um executive agencies and how is it that they could make make all of these rules they're not called laws can't be laws but they act as laws they call them rules how can they make all of these rules from an unelected body of persons right so that's a whole nother do they violate the investment clause right a whole nother ballgame but a fun one to bring up just to put a little controversy out there see what happens with all of our listeners you know again but anyway, so it gives um, judicial powers invested in one court and in such inferior courts, inferior courts as Congress shall from time to time ordain and establish, which Congress does, by the way. In 1789, they passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, and it sets up the Supreme Court, the district courts, and the appellate courts. It sets them all up, right? But then Section 2 just goes on. All it does is say this. It says the judicial power shall extend to the following cases. And it just gives a list of cases like laws affecting ambassadors, laws affecting councils, public ministers, maritime and admiralty laws, right? Um, laws in which the United States is a party, controversies between two states, controversies between the state and citizens of another state. Uh, so it just lays out all of these controversies. So that would that be defined as original jurisdiction? Yes. So what it does is it says... These are basically all places what we call original jurisdiction. In other words, if any of these controversies occur, those controversies can be heard by the Supreme Court. First, first, we call that original jurisdiction. Okay, and then anything else basically that's not on this list is what we call appellate jurisdiction. It means it can be heard by a lower court first, right? So that gives us the distinction. And a, and a, and a lower court like a district court would then assume original jurisdiction. 
to hear the case first. And then in an appellate case, if you don't like the decision in the original case, you appeal it, and then it's reviewed by the higher court. So we see that the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is assigned, original jurisdiction is assigned in the Constitution. These are the cases that it can hear. And anything that's not in this list, essentially, belongs to the appellate courts or the district, well, not the appellate courts, it belongs to the district courts to hear first. Right. Right. If it's not completely contained in the state, in which case it's the state's legal system. In which case it's the state's legal system. That's correct. Yeah. So, but notice the wording. The wording is that the jurisdiction extends to controversies or cases. It never says, it never says that it has anything to do, the court's jurisdiction has anything to do with interpreting the Constitution. It's basically saying they can resolve controversies. It doesn't say that they can interpret laws. Right, because that's a huge difference. Um, Absolutely big difference. You know, um, I, I want to say, um, and, and we, somebody might need to fact check me on this, but um, I want to say that that's sort of the way that Louisiana's judicial system works. They're, they're sort of under the Napoleonic Code, more mm-hmm. so than the common law. Um and when their when their court make a decision, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily change precedent. I mean, it, right. it, it, they make a decision for that case in that instant, and only that case, right? And you know, then uh, obviously their legislature would have to come back and 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 relegislate whatever you know if they wanted that to change. Yeah, the the, the lawmaking entity would have to change the law, not the judicial, and that's that's essentially what what we have here. You interpret the Constitution, you're you're de facto changing the law. Yes, and, and you know Hamilton hints at this, right? He hints at this later on that there's a major problem with this, right? And um, he does so actually in Federalist uh, 84. When you look at the uh, the Federalist Papers, you know he's explaining everything. Federalist 84 of all things is about the Bill of Rights. Okay. So in Federalist 84, there, you know, he's answering objections. He's answering uh, individuals who want a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. They're like, you know, which Hamilton opposed. Hamilton opposed the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Now he did so. And this is very important. Um, he did so not on the grounds that we ought not have rights. Right? Hamilton was a supporter of rights. So let's not confuse the, the point. Right? Right. Hamilton's. He poses several different arguments. One of the arguments that he poses, for example, is that there are things within the Constitution that already prohibit government from infringing upon individual rights, right? Um, if you look at Article 1, like Section 3, of the, um, uh, not Section 3, Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, for example, you can't pass ex post facto laws, laws that apply backwards in time, which are very dangerous to personal freedoms. Right. You can't suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Right, except in times of an emergency, which is the right to have charges actually brought against you. You know, um, no bills of attainder, which is you can't be put in jail uh, without a trial. Right, and so Hamilton's argument is that there are, there's processes that protect these things, but there's kind of like an interesting side note, and some of them are uh, that Hamilton is kind of hinting at, although he doesn't directly say it in the words that we would say it in, but I'll give you some of the things that Hamilton is hinting at. W- what happens if you put a Bill of Rights in the Constitution and you leave out a right? Is it no longer a right? 
right? Hamilton wants to distance the government from the people as far as possible, because by distancing the government from the people, his argument is that the people are going to be able to retain their rights to a greater extent. Now, the anti-federalist arguments are like the opposite, right? The anti-federalists are like, no, if you distance the government too far from the people, then the government's going to forget about the people and trample on those rights. So there's that opposite extreme. Where you can look at Hamilton's argument, too, from a different way in the sense that, sure, um, when it comes to any right, you can pick any right in the Constitution. Give a, a lawyer a legal document, and you think it means one thing. Like, it has a clear meaning to you. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's freedom of speech. It's easy, right? It's freedom of speech. And the lawyer can go, well, not so fast. You can interpret something a multiplicity of ways. And one of the complaints about having a Bill of Rights in the Constitution is who's going to interpret those rights? Well, the government is. So even though you can say you have a list of protected rights, those gov the government can make those rights mean whatever the government wants through the process of interpretation. Right. And we do that today, of course, which leads us into the second part of this podcast. When, you know, we're just going to touch on it here because that's the whole point of this big controversy from from here on forward is that when the government begins to interpret rights, it can add to a right. It can take away a right. You can even say that it can make up rights that aren't even there. If the government can interpret it in, then the government can interpret it out. So that's kind of one of the difficulties that we run into with the whole idea of adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Now, don't get me wrong, so just so our listeners don't think I'm crazy, I'm a supporter of the Bill of Rights. It really sounds like when you start going over this stuff, you can really see, you're like, well, man, Hamilton's arguments are kind of ringing true to my ears. Absolutely. So we'll get into that in the, the next section. But what I want to do at the very end of this podcast is discuss um, Marbury v. Madison, as we had, had brought up because it, it's actually very pertinent to what's going on, right? So you're familiar, I'm sure, with the case here a little bit. Sure, sure. So we have the midnight the midnight appointments. The right? midnight appointments of John Adams. And you know that Adams and Jefferson hated each other at first. And they kind of reconciled towards the end of their life. Right. right. You know that Adams and Jefferson, the only two founders who will sign the Declaration of Independence and become president. Oh, I did not. I didn't. Did not. And not only that, did you know they died on the same day? And did you literally the same day, July 4th? I did know that, yeah. 1832. They both thought they died second, right? Or they both thought they died first? They both thought, thought that they had died second. I think Jefferson's last words are, uh, well, at least you still have Adams. Right. And Adams had died. It was one of them that said that. And Adams had died like four hours earlier. Or something like right. That. So, I did know that. Yeah. Very, so, so did Washington not sign the Declaration of Independence? He wasn't a part of the convention. He, wasn't a he was he was off fighting was the off war. Fighting the war, right? Yeah, he wasn't there. So, but anyway, um, uh, Marbury Madison is very interesting, and it has to do with the, the politics of judicial appointments of all things, which is what we're going through today, right? So, this is a very good case for us to discuss, leading up to modern events, right? Adams is leaving the presidency, and Jefferson's coming in. Jefferson had been his vice president, but that's correct. They hated each other. They hated each other. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening today? Right? Oh, wow. So Adams is leaving the presidency. In comes, uh, in comes Jefferson. Adams is thinking to himself, I'm going to get one last dig. Jefferson, right, as he's coming in. He appoints. He has all of these judicial seats that are open. And he appoints like 50-some-odd seats, right, before he leaves off. He's just going to fill every seat. And he's going to try to fill them with federalist thinkers. 
Jefferson being more of an anti-federal, favoring small, you know. Adams is like, I'm going to get the dig in. I'm the next guy, right? Also pertinent to today's also, court systems, right? And so he makes all of these appointments. Well, there was a secretary of state. Um, his name is John Marshall, all right? He's the secretary of state, and he's got to deliver all of these appointments. So he's out, like, riding the night away, you know, on horseback. He doesn't deliver them all. He gets tired. He's not going to deliver them all. So he leaves them on the desk the new secretary of state to come in and finish their deliveries in the morning. The new secretary of state who will be sworn in with Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, right? Just so happened that one of those appointments named John Marshall, of course he delivered his own, right? Got his right. own appointment. One of those appointments named John Marshall, chief justice of the Supreme Court. So Marshall, of course, gets his own, but these other ones, I think there were like 20 some odd left, he just kind of leaves them there. It's like, ah, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't have time to be doing this. So he leaves them. And, uh, you know, I'm going to embellish the story a little bit, but moral of the story, the next day, James Madison comes in and he has on his desk, his new secretary of state, all of these judicial appointments. What do I do with them all? Could they be delivered? One of those guys was uh, Marbury. He was being, Marbury was being appointed to actually pretty low position in and modern standards, pretty low position, but back then it held more prominence, the justice of the peace position, right? Hey, well, you're, you're JP. Ah, no, this is like, we don't think much of the JP position. What, where would a federal, what, what, there, there, were, there was a federal? I do believe it was peace. within the District of Columbia. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, but I do know it was a JP position, but I think it was within the District of Columbia that he was receiving the appointment. And so, James Madison, under Jefferson's orders, is like, what do I do with all of these appointments? You know, what, what do I do with them? And, and basically, Thomas Jefferson, the new president, says, don't deliver them. I don't want any of these people serving on my court. So don't deliver them. So Marbury, knowing he gets word that he was one of those appointments, sues Madison to get his appointment. Okay. Now, here's where, here's where the real fun begins, right? So... Under the Judiciary Act of 1789, and keep in mind, this is all taking place in 1800, 1801 is when the transition of power is taking place. And the case doesn't get to the court until 1803, where it finally resolves. But in in this Judiciary Act of 1789, something very odd about that act. The act allowed the Supreme Court to hear by original jurisdiction the act allowed the Supreme Court to hear any judicial appointment cases. In other words, if a case arises concerning a judge, that case can go directly in front of the Supreme Court. Now, the Constitution doesn't say that, but the Judiciary Act of 1789 did, right? So this is where it gets really fun. So the case gets filed and it goes directly to the Supreme Court, right? Um, now, who's the chief judge of the Supreme Court? John Marshall, the man who caused the whole problem, one could say, by not delivering the appointments, is the man who's going to overhear the case. Talk about, is there is there anything such thing as called a recusal? Like, you know, if you have an invested interest in the case, you should recuse yourself, right? You should, but this is American politics, so. <laughs> so does Marshall recuse himself from the case? Absolutely. Heck no. <laughs>
here. But intentionally what happens is this, the case goes in front of the Supreme Court and Marshall, and of course the whole court's got to make a ruling on this, but Marshall's a little bit of a pickle himself personally in this whole thing. Jefferson at some point in time basically tells Marshall, I don't care what you order the court to do. I'm not going to fill the vacancy. So if Marshall orders the vacancy to be delivered, the appointment to be delivered, and it's not delivered because who can who has to deliver and who has to enforce the Supreme Court decision? The executive. Executive branch. And if the executive branch refuses to enforce a decision made by the court, well, then the court looks like mud. Right. Right. I mean, they look terrible. At the same token, Marshall's the guy that caused the controversy. Marshall knows Marbury deserves the appointment. He knows he deserves the appointment because he should have delivered it. So if he doesn't, if he rules against Marshall, he looks terrible and the whole court system looks terrible, right? What does he do? Marshall's a very clever guy. (laughs) What Marshall does is he decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, and perhaps rightly so, that's the funny thing about his decision. Um, I actually think it's a correct decision, right? He looks at it and he says, well, he says in the case, Marbury deserves the appointment, but the Judiciary Act, which allowed the appointment case to come directly in front of the Supreme Court, is unconstitutional. He said, because the Judiciary Act gave the Supreme Court a power which you cannot do without changing the Constitution. He's saying you cannot add or take away anything from the Constitution without constitutional amendment. Give the Supreme Court a power beyond what's stated in the Constitution would be a violation of the Constitution. The only way that you could do that, he's saying, is to actually amend the Constitution. Right? If you want, you can't give the court any more jurisdiction by statutory law. You can only do it through constitutional law. Right. Because that's the Constitution, Article 6. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So he looks at it and says if there's a conflict between a statutory law and the Constitution, He said the supremacy clause states that the Constitution comes out on top. And so that law comes in direct conflict with the Constitution. And as a result of that, the law is unconstitutional and the law must be thrown out. And if the law is thrown out, the case has to be thrown out because the case never should have come to the court in the first place. Marshall's a smart guy. Let me tell you, he works this case brilliantly to get out of he appeases Jefferson. Jefferson's happy because he doesn't have to deliver the appointment. The court is happy because they've gained a power they've never had before. It's like, I'm going to deny the small power. This small right. power of like, we can hear judicial cases. We're going to deny that power. And in so doing, we're going to take an even bigger power. Right. Well, then that's the ironic thing about it is that Marshall saying, you know, that this act had added a power which wasn't in the Constitution and that's unconstitutional. But Gave the court. It's, and I wouldn't even. Say, I mean, to say it's its biggest power is an understatement. It it gave the the court its the, it, power. the power. I mean, it, it before that before they had the power of judicial review, they were just there to solve you know conflicts. Conflicts, if they, yeah. If they came up, you know, and I think that's really what the founders probably intended for them to do. I don't think judicial review was ever in any of their minds. I, I agree with you. I don't think um, anyone ever saw a judicial review coming. 
Uh, it makes sense. The logic behind it makes sense. And of course, there's a major problem with it, as we're going to talk about, right, in the next episode. But it makes logical sense that what happens if two laws do conflict with one another? It would seem that if there are two con conflicting laws, um, that the supreme law wins out over the conflict. Absolutely. And yeah. so that is the court's job if there's that conflict. Now, one could make an argument in this case that there really wasn't a conflict. You know, that you could easily argue that Marshall was being very tricky with this, that he was wiggling his way out of the case and that um, out of his personal conflict. And that the Judiciary Act, which allowed the Supreme Court, there's nothing in the Constitution See, that. They yes. So there's nothing that directly prohibited the Supreme Court from hearing such cases. There really was no conflict. So you could you could make that you argument. You say that. Though. It really just depends upon how you interpret the Constitution. Is the Constitution are all of the things in the Constitutions, you know, are they set? Are they just verbatim, word for word? And that there's nothing inherent in the Constitution. Uh, in other words, do we? There's a, con a concept today of what we call the inherent power. We just say things are inherent to the position. And one could say, well, it's just inherent to the position that the court needs to resolve conflicts between the supreme law and other laws. So therefore, judicial review is an inherent power. We say the same thing about the presidency, right? Executive order is not in the Constitution. You can look through it; it's not there. We just say it's inherent. It's inherent to the, what good is an executive if you can't order the law to be enforced? Right. Because how else would you, that, that's our modern expression of how you enforce the law is through order. Right, right. So we would say it's kind of an inherent thing. So but inherent does not, even though something might be inherent to the con Constitution, doesn't necessarily that mean that there's a conflict between the Constitution and the, and the and the law. In this case, there's no real direct conflict per se. It's just that, there's nothing that prohibits such a thing from, that prohibits Congress from doing what it did. We just look at the, what the Constitution directly does, and the assumption is that if it doesn't directly say it, then it belongs to the district courts, which Congress had to make in the same act <laughs> as the judiciary. So it's a very, it's still a very controversial case, but today it's just taken for granted. The whole case is taken for granted, but this is what opens up. The power of judicial review is what opens up everything that we're experiencing today with the courts, which we'll get into shortly. Right. Should we enter? Should we end with uh, I, I an affirmation? Want, I had one comment. And okay. We'll yes. Go in our, yes. So I'll, I'll let you have the last Okay. One, one comment. <laughs> so, so the interesting thing about the, about the power of judicial review is that to overturn something like Marbury versus Madison, which would never happen, but in order to overturn it, you would have to use the power that you would be claiming was unconstitutional. Yes. So it can't be overturned. Yeah, just do like, <laughs> so we wanted to say that judicial review doesn't exist. And right. so what we're going to do is we're going to reverse the precedent. So we have to overrule Marbury v. Madison, right? Right. What we would have to do is we would have to say that Marbury v. Madison is in conflict with the Constitution, and therefore the Supreme Court has to say that when a Supreme Court decision is in conflict with the Constitution, the Supreme Court decision. So it like becomes it's a, a circular argument. It's a circular you, you argument. Once it's in, it's in. Like it's established deal. There's no, there's no overturning the precedent. Yeah. Like it is there, and you just can't get rid of it. I suppose you could get rid of it for a constitutional amendment, which is currently the only true way to overturn a Supreme Court decision is by constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendment. Yeah. The only way to do it. Uh, Congress can try to pass laws around it. Right. But that's really. 
that's just kind of a workaround. The only really way to directly overturn a Supreme Court decision would be to amend the Constitution on that particular issue. Absolutely. Well, on that note... Yeah, we uh, ran a little long with this yeah, episode. Somebody's a little long-winded in this room. You need to stop talking so much. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely me over here. Um, so I'll start off with... Uh, we do knowledge or affirmations first. Let's do affirmations first. Okay. Uh, so I'll start off... My affirmation, I'm affirming our new website, um, which is fantastic. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we have the best website designer on our team, on our staff. Is that you? Well, it actually is. Yeah. yeah. I'm you. yeah. So uh, but, uh, I would encourage you to, to check it out. Uh, however, it's not up yet. It's not published. It does exist. It does exist. So wait, you're telling our listeners to check out a website that's unpublished. It's unpublished. But as of yet, but it will be published at some time when we get a domain name. <laughs> That's brilliant. So I was going to get the domain name notcon.com because I thought that our name of our show is a little lengthy and maybe, yeah, yeah. But, but it was taken. So uh, back to the drawing board. Son of a gun. Right, so I have to figure out something well, else. Well, with all the millions you make, why don't you just buy it out? I, you know, I could. <laughs> I, I could. I think it was like 60 bucks to buy it out. And I was like, nah, we'll come up with something. <laughs> uh, so what about you? What, what well, are you I'm affirming? going to affirm the fact that we now have two microphones finally for our show. Heck yes. I'm so sure our listeners will affirm our, that as well. I'm sure our listeners are like uh, sick of hearing to, and hopefully this actually solved it. I don't know. We're going to see like the highs and lows of our sound. You know, we're, we're experimenting here. We're getting better at this as we go. So, Fair enough. you know, I, I've affirmed the, the microphone. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited. I hope I hope that y'all can hear us a little bit better out there. Um, denials. Man, this is this is tough. It is tough. It's a good thing. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, should we just deny Marbury v. Madison? I, you, you deny Marbury, I'll deny Madison. <laughs> I'll deny John Marshall. I, I you will deny. say this. Well done, John Marshall. I, this is more of an affirmation, if I suppose, so I shouldn't say it this way, but well done, John Marshall, in creating a massive controversy for the United States to deal with for the next 200 and some odd years. Right. right. Yeah. Um, uh, man, I don't know. What are, what are we going to deny? You know, I think I'll, I'll deny um, um, Facebook uh, keyboard lawyers. Oh. That's <laughs> who, good. Are, who are all of a sudden all yeah. experts in constitutional law. <laughs> I get that. I get that. We have that with other things as well, right? Not Absolutely. just not just lawyers on on constitutional law, right? But man, it's just any any controversy that comes up. You know, I just I just want to like turn Facebook. Of course, I don't ever engage in any of these arguments because there's no there's absolutely Facebook no doesn't reason. convince anybody of anything. Nothing. Like I don't think Twitter does either. Like people are they sat in their ways mostly and like it, okay, so it can convince you of one thing. With that. It can convince you of the doctrine of total depravity. So <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> so, you know, as a good Presbyterian, I'll, I'll, a little, <laughs> little plug for total depravity. Um, I always got to work religion into it right, somehow. Well, it's in our name. It's in our name. That's true. I, I agree. It's not that. controversial. No. Well, if it's in the name, it can't be. It can't be because the show is not controversial. Not at all. We don't discuss anything controversial here. All right, let's let's leave our listeners alone for the day. They're probably sick of it, and 
<sighs> need a quick break from us. <laughs> Real quick <Quit> break. <laughs> yeah, more than a quick break. More than a quick. I'm sure, break. they're going to go do something mindless like play video game because actually that would be more mindful. I think listening to the Joker. <laughs> We're out of here. We got to close this out. <laughs>